Hey Magic Lantern listeners, there is no opening scene today as this will be the second of two episodes in which we are covering Noir City Austin 2017, a film festival brought to us by the Film Noir Foundation and screening at the Alamo Drafthouse. For this episode, instead of discussing our usual one film, we're talking about 10, the entire program of Noir City Austin 2017. You'll never take me alive, coppers. <laughs> Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. This time we're going to be talking about Noir City Austin 2017. This festival is one of our favorite events of the year. We look forward to it so much. And it is a long weekend celebrating some of the greatest films noir ever made. From milestone classics to some of the more obscure gems that you don't often get to see. All hosted by the czar of noir, Eddie Muller. If you'd like to hear more from Eddie... You can go back to our episode number 48 and check out our interview with him discussing the festival, the Film Noir Foundation, and all things you find at the dark end of the street. The theme this year is the big knockover. Holdups, heists, and schemes gone awry. So let's get right to it. The festival kicked off with High Sierra from 1941, directed by Raoul Walsh with Humphrey Bogart, Ida Lupino, and Arthur Kennedy. I can't believe you're leaving out Zero the Dog as part. That is a huge error on my part. I'm <laughs> sorry. I'll be talking about him at length in just a second. Okay. Well, the film itself is about Humphrey Bogart as Roy Earl. After being released from prison, notorious thief Roy Earl is hired by his old boss to help a group of inexperienced criminals plan and carry out the robbery of a California resort. I thought it was a great way to kick off the festival just as a title by itself, but especially for us because you had never seen it before. Which is such a huge joy to encounter one of those things that you've never seen, and it was a pure delight. I, of course, mentioned the folks involved in it. This is a stellar cast, great supporting characters. The backdrop is magnificent. I love that part of the country. I know there are significant differences between the Sierras and Yosemite. Yosemite is one of my favorite places on Earth, and this immediately calls that to mind for me. So I am sucked in from the moment the camera starts to roll. I thought it was also a great way to start because you get to see the progression of the heist film. Specifically in this, the heist itself makes up a very small portion of the film. And in later years, I think we get used to the heist itself being something that's very precise and honed, but that's not the case here. It's more about desperate people doing desperate things and never tying up loose ends, which is such a noir theme. Well, let's talk about that, because this isn't a noir exactly as much as it has noir tendencies. What are some of those tendencies that you noticed? I really liked watching the female characters. They're not exactly femme fatales. Right. In fact, I would say the opposite. I would say they are straight shooters, and they're not focused on manipulating everything solely to their benefit. For example, we've got Joan Leslie as the young ingenue Velma. You start out thinking, at least I did, that she's going to be more of a one-dimensional character. But of course, in John Houston's hands, that's generally not going to be the mm. case. She 
is allowed to change quite a bit in her pivotal scenes. And then, of course, we have Ida Lupino. Lantern favorite. She's exceptional. She's wonderful. Enough could never be said about how fantastic Ida Lupino is. She's playing a little bit more of what would come to be kind of a traditional role of the damaged woman with a heart of gold. Tough as nails, too. And like you said, straight shooters, they say exactly what they're feeling. There's no artifice. And you get the sense throughout that she's the smartest one involved in this. Oh, without a doubt. You talked about the dog, Pard. (laughs) Wonderful little guy. He is the cutest, furriest harbinger of doom you'll ever see. I am so pissed that they pinned everything on this dog. He's set up to be, like you said, the harbinger of doom. Wherever he goes, tragedy follows, and this is going to be no exception. Right, because one of the other noir characteristics that it has is that inevitable bad end. Everything is hurtling toward unavoidable doom. One of the differences is that we get to watch Humphrey Bogart transition from the bad guy to the good guy, even though he's a criminal, Mm -hmm. even though he kills people in this. I definitely want to talk about that. But before we gloss over what you just said about him transitioning from good guy to bad guy, that's not just in this film. This was a pivotal point in his career because prior to this, he had done a lot of Warner Brothers Hard-boiled, tough-guy gangsters. Not good guys. Not anti-heroes. Straight-up villains. And this was the linchpin that allowed him to cross over into Maltese Falcon, Casablanca, in which he is the morally conflicted good guy. We know that he doesn't go back on his word. He doesn't cross his friends and his partners. And he generally responds with great generosity to people whom he judges as salt-of-the-earth type characters. The Henry Travers character, wonderful in this. Mm -hmm. But like you mentioned, he does kill people. This fits really nicely into that tradition of the outlaw as folk hero thing for me. Your Jesse Jameses, your Bonnie and Clydeses. (laughs) (laughs) Roy Earl is definitely one of those characters, and we go along for a good chunk of the film, really sympathizing with him. And he's romanticized until he starts to take it out on normal people. For an hour and a half or so, he only inflicts damage on other criminals, dirty ex-cops. But then innocent bystanders start to get in the way. The owner of the general store, people who just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And we realize He's not the Robin Hood that we have been feeling like he was for the first three-fourths of the film. It's when that desperation reaches a fever pitch that he's got to take these shortcuts. And it ends up with death and destruction in his wake. The biggest impression it made upon me this time, getting to see it on the big screen for the first time, I've seen it a couple times prior, but only at home, was that you are watching the work of consummate professionals. And when something is so well made, how captivating it is and easy it is to go along with this romanticizing of this character. Raoul Walsh is no slouch. That guy could make excellent movies in his sleep because he had had a prolific career up to this point. And all of that is on screen. The economy of the thing, how well it's shot, there's nothing wasted in it. You can tell you're watching someone highly skilled crafting this film. And the other thing I took from it, of course, is don't do jobs with chiselers, soda jerks, and jitterbugs. So true. What do we have next? 
Okay, second on the bill this year was The Killers from 1946, directed by Robert C. Odmack from Ernest Hemingway's short story, starring Burt Lancaster, Ava Gardner, Edmund O'Brien, and Sam Levine. As Eddie mentioned in his intro, it's sort of the Citizen Kane of film noir, both in its importance and its stylistic achievement and its structure, because we start with the death of what seems like the main character, and then this investigation unfurls through flashbacks how we got to that point. The more I know of love. <laughs> that was my impression of Ava Gardner smoldering up the screen. Yeah, from the word go, that intro, she captivates him and the audience, and the look on his face, he might as well be bending her over that piano. <laughs> I was thinking it's more of that, huh? It's that gobsmacked of a schlub has just met his downfall. Unbeknownst to him. Yeah, we see it coming from 20 miles away. It's funny because prior to this, tellingly, in the pre-show, they showed that Tex Avery super sexy Little Red Riding Hood cartoon with the wolf with the bulging eyes. This is exactly that. Yes, he's practically saying, auga and hitting himself with the hammer on the head. But anyway, all joking aside, this was spectacular. It looks wonderful. It sounds even better. The dialogue is what made this the star for me. Mm -hmm. Well, we went from noir-ish to full-tilt film noir with this one. There is no ifs, ands, or buts whether or not this one is firmly rooted in that tradition. How about the style elements? Oh, so beautiful. Such stark contrast and shadows thrown all over everything all those things that came together to make film noir happen including the german expressionist cinematography that's all on full display right here it looks so great we've got the stellar supporting cast i know you and i both loved sam levine above everybody else yeah he was my favorite thing about it it's great but he really stands out and i do want to say a special shout out to william conrad yeah fantastic Sam Levine plays the warmest cop you'll ever meet in your life. Everybody should have a friend like that on your side. In contrast to High Sierra, we've got a full-on femme fatale, an Ava Gardner. Really couldn't be anybody else. It's so interesting, and I think it's only going to become more so as we keep going through the films, to see the progression of the female character types. Mm -hmm. What did you see with these two juxtaposed like this? That first film, you mentioned we've got those straight shooters. We know who they are. Mm. And really, we know who the Ava Gardner character is as well. It's just everyone else is trying to catch up. Mm -hmm. She's a schemer. She's a double crosser. She's only out for what she can get. She uses her body as her weapon. She's got a sweater that's second only to Peggy Cummins and Gun Crazy. And you have to be the dumbest mope in the world to not realize that she is trouble. Burt Lancaster, on the other hand, I've actually never really been a huge fan of his, mm -hmm. especially early works. He has a way with dialogue that to me comes out really unnaturally, especially when you watch Sam Levine work. Yeah. And he draws you in. I like more Burt Lancaster's later stuff. But he's still very well cast, and he does put the character over, I think. Yeah, Sam Levine is playing one of these great noir tropes of the cop with the heart of gold that grew up in the neighborhood everybody knows him so he has a unique relationship to the criminal underworld where he is trying to do his job 
you see it in stuff like Cry of the City with Victor Mature all the way down the line. But this particular rendition of it is spectacular because I love him. Other noir things that pop up, you've got the insurance investigator rather than the cop or the private eye who is unraveling this case in the tradition of something like Double Indemnity. You've got that great hard-boiled dialogue that you mentioned, and there is one scene that just knocks that out of the park. The most film noir doctor to ever be on screen says, he's dead now, except he's breathing. It's a great, great moment. It's a great line. There are a million great lines in this. The dialogue, I'll say it again, is the standout for me. And in talking about how you discover new things when these films are screened together, how they contextualize each other, Strangely enough, both High Sierra and this have a sequence about stargazing, seeing Jupiter in particular, and how that is a pastime when you're in stir. So you've got a trope that I've never thought about that probably really resonates with a lot of people who have found themselves in that position that only reveals itself when you're watching these movies back to back to back. That sort of things is one of the greatest parts of going to a well-curated festival. So that was day one. High Sierra and the Killers. That was three great ladies, two tragic ends, one cool dog, and a whole bunch of chiselers, soda jerks, and jitterbugs. Okay, on to day two. We kicked off the day with The Asphalt Jungle from 1950, directed by John Huston, with Sterling Hayden, Louis Calhoun, Gene Hagen, Sam Jaffe, and James Whitmore. It's a caper film, of course about putting the team together, crooked characters, the downfall of a big shot, but for me, most of all, the supporting performances. Now, we saw this not long ago, a home viewing prior to this, and you were kind of lukewarm on it. How did you feel coming out of it after seeing it on the big screen? It's true. After we watched it, I felt like, gosh, I kind of expected I would like that a lot more than I did. Now, this big screen viewing kind of turned it around for me. I really got into it. So I think it's one of those that lends itself to the big screen experience. Definitely. Now, what stands out? It's the same thing as in the first viewing. James Whitmore. I love him in this. He's my favorite in this, actually. He is a caged lion in this. (laughs) Louis Calhoun and Sam Jaffe. To me, this is really their film. Mm -hmm. First viewing... I was most lukewarm on Sterling Hayden. Okay. For me, he's exceptional in later films, one of which we're actually going to talk about. Okay. But I wasn't really feeling his performance that much in this. That was the first go-round. This time, I think the viewing was about me being able to see and read his face. Okay. And what he is giving in his performance. There was something in the big screen experience that I noticed, too, that might have changed how I felt about it slightly. Although I think I liked it better than you from the beginning, we'll see subtle differences in how he is portrayed in this and then later in the day in The Killing. In this, I realized on the big screen how much he fills up a door frame. The guy is immense in this film, and it is very subtle directorial things happening with camera placement that he feels that way in The Asphalt Jungle, but not in The Killing. In The Killing, he's the mastermind, not the brawn. He's the brains. And so he is shot subtly differently, and he does not seem like he is so imposing. Even though he is a mountain of a man in both films, you only really get the sense of that in the Asphalt Jungle. If we're going to sort of rank those performances, I would say Asphalt Jungle, good. The Killing, great. 
the long goodbye, exceptional. <laughs> that is our favorite. Yes. Age is something that wears really well on him. That's true. The ensemble as a whole is absolutely stellar, but the three that I mentioned, James Whitmore, Louis Calhoun, and Sam Jaffe, they are the powerhouses to me. Calhoun is a man who is terrified, which is clearly a new sensation for him. We talked about how great James Whitmore is, that contained and uncontained rage. Jaffe is the walking, quiet, vibrating vice. We talked about how the heist itself in all of these films is going to progress. This one is precise and planned, which makes the unforeseen accidents, whether they are really unforeseen or not, if you watch enough of these, you know they're probably not, but it makes those so much more poignant. I also talked about the female characters, which I want to touch upon in most, if not all, of the films that we discuss. We've got, in this one, the bombshell, Marilyn Monroe, who wants to be left alone. <laughs> We've got the neurotic wife, who wants to just be loved. She's my favorite of the three. Actually, it's a tie between her and the girl at the diner putting nickels in the jukebox. <laughs> I, I love figured the, you would like I her. love the two of them equally. <laughs> And then we've got the girlfriend and Jean Hagen, who just wants a home. Everyone is top-notch. And in addition to the acting, the pacing, the opening music mm. really stands out. Well, day two was where things started to get really heisty. Day one with High Sierra and the Killers didn't quite have the full planning of the job, the execution of the plan. We get to see that in full flower in the asphalt jungle, which is one of the great elements of it. And we also get to see the first of our things that come to our attention when you put these films side by side by side. That you might not otherwise notice. That you might not notice happening this much. But in this case, those things that you mentioned that are going to go wrong, day two, that most often ends with someone getting gut shot. <laughs> it's just the way of film noir that if a gun gets dropped or kicked or if the heist starts to go south and someone is firing wildly, someone's taking that lead in the belly. So day one got off to a better start than you expected then, with Asphalt Jungle being more revelatory on the big screen than on the small screen. Definitely. So we go from one you had seen before to the second film of the day, which was the first one on the program day two that you hadn't seen. Right. Which was Crisscross from 1949, directed by Robert C. Mack, starring Burt Lancaster, Yvonne DiCarlo, and Dan Duryea. And it's the story of an armored truck driver and his lovely ex-wife who conspire with a gang to have his own truck robbed on his route. He's the inside man. We had certain expectations for the asphalt jungle. I was wondering what you were thinking going into this, because we had just seen the killers the night before, and this was kind of an unofficial sequel to that, directed by Robert Siodmak again, starring Burt Lancaster again, and it was the intention of the producer of The Killers, Mark Hellinger, to capitalize on the heat from that and make another noir in that fashion. Unfortunately, he died before this came to fruition. So clearly it's a long-established tradition in the history of Hollywood. It is not a new thing to say, oh, that worked once, let's go to that money well again. So what were you thinking going into this one? I've been excited to see this one for years, if not decades. Okay. So it was a big buildup for me. Now, you just mentioned a bunch of interesting production details. And I highly recommend anyone who is listening, if you ever have even the remotest chance to go to one of these Noir City festivals, wherever they're held, 
take that chance. You want to hear Eddie Muller introduce these films. In this one, we've got Yvonne DiCarlo filling in for Ava Gardner. To me, she's kind of the low-rent version of Ava Gardner. She's certainly more attainable, more accessible, whereas Ava Gardner is from another planet, really. So what I learned from this, everyone is a dope. <laughs> Burt Lancaster is certainly a sap two times in a row. Absolutely. To be as beautiful as he is, he's the biggest schlub in the world. <laughs> to me, everyone deserves each other because they are aiming for the bottom. We mentioned Burt Lancaster. He's the immature sap. Yvonne is the immature femme fatale. And Dan Duryea, with his petulant baby voice, <laughs> he's the immature psychopath. Camera work, I think, is the star mm -hmm. of this. Movement and pacing and atmosphere creating a lot out of elements that might seem dull in another's hands. In particular, all of that motion through the club, when all of the dancing is happening and the rumba is playing, that camera work is fantastic. The beautiful overhead of the car, of the armored car. That scene on the street with one of the henchmen playing with his dog. Mm -hmm. Love that. In Eddie Muller's opinion, Yvonne in the closing scene gives the femme fatale manifesto, as he says. You're an idiot. <laughs> I can't help it if people can't take care of themselves. And I can't get far from here dragging you around. Yeah. I know this goes against the conventional wisdom of how people look at that era of Hollywood in general. But I like Yvonne DiCarlo better than Ava Gardner. Ava Gardner has never really done it for me. I think it's very much the feeling of accessibility that you mentioned. She's definitely not a girl next door. But she's a girl from the neighborhood, let's say. And she is definitely looking out for number one, like these characters often do. But I can see how she could rope someone in, especially someone that grew up with her, that knew her from around. Maybe she's just more my type, too, in general, I think, with the big eyes and the higher forehead, just the characteristics that appeal to me more. But I think I like this a little bit better. So sue me. <laughs> in the first place, you're crazy. If you pick Yvonne DiCarlo over Ava Gardner, she would be top of my list. Mm, neither one of them are Peggy Cummins, so I don't care. That's true. I totally understand what you're saying, and none of what I have said is a criticism. I want to watch it again. Mm -hmm. I want to see them double-cross and crisscross each other again. What you have at heart is a lousy relationship, a lousy marriage with lousy people, and I cannot wait to put that DVD back in the player. The interesting device that we see come out of this one is the gas masks, the whole minute-work ruse of the robbery in crisscross. That carries over into armored car robbery, which we saw next, onto things like Basil Dearden picking it up for his film The League of Gentlemen in 1960. You see these things get handed down and handed down and recycled, but it's fun here to go back to their origin and see where that idea came from. And that brings us to armored car robbery from 1950. Can you think of a more prosaic title than that? <laughs> it tells you everything you need to know. Directed by Richard Fleischer, with Charles McGraw, Adele Jurgens, William Talman, Steve Brody, and Gene Evans. It's about the titular armored car robbery, which goes awry with a tough cop on the trail of the gangsters. This is the first one of the batch that I hadn't seen before, so I was super excited to start with. And then, one of my favorite moments in the whole world, lights go down, logo comes up, fanfare, 
and it's the RKO logo. So I know I have hit the jackpot. You know they're my favorite. We absolutely hit the jackpot. This was a huge highlight. It is lean, mean, and thoroughly awesome. It's got fast-paced dialogue, which it has to because it's only about 67 minutes. Yeah, it was a B programmer. It was the lower part of a double bill originally. Which are generally my favorites. Yeah. Regardless of what they are. It's got action that moves like lightning, inventive direction, and acting that is way more fun and way better than it really has any right to be. The great Richard Fleischer takes a genre picture and injects it with wit and fun and a streak of low-down nastiness that never gets too, too dark. It was a great, fun entry. Well, William Tallman is such a creep in this. Reptilian was the word that Eddie used to introduce it, and I think that's dead on. And you see that become even more pronounced as his career goes on, because interestingly, there's so much cross-pollination in this genre. And you see people together in various combinations, both on screen and off. And so already we've seen Ida Lupino in the first film, Edmund O'Brien in the second film, and now William Tallman in this, who all are on a collision course unbeknownst to them to make The Hitchhiker, in 1953, the first noir directed by a woman. That woman being Ida Lupino, one of our absolute favorites. William Talman resorts to a trick here that you could go your entire life without seeing. Decades without hearing the phrase. But when he boxes Steve Brody's ears in this, I can't think of anything more painful happening at that very moment. I'd rather have you stick a finger in a bullet hole, maybe, than have you box my ears like that. (laughs) And funnily enough... Much like happens when you put these movies together, we see that not only in this movie, but in the next one, inexplicably enough. Which got me to thinking, since there's so much of this cross-pollination, and the same writers and performers and directors are turning up, and they've all worked together for years, how much of that is just someone's signature thing? John Huston, for instance, being involved in the first two pictures we saw that had the mention of Jupiter in astronomy, maybe that was just a device he really liked. Is that in a number of John Huston movies? I'd have to go back and double check. And so is it a coincidence that earboxing is in two movies in a row? Or is that someone who really liked that and thought, I'm just going to work this into everything because this is great. Now, do you have a go-to device that you would try to sneak into every screenplay that you wrote? Okay. In this scenario, I'm also going to be in these movies. Okay. So I would uh, have a song and dance number <laughs> in every single one. What are you, dick pal? Beat it. Nickel and dime song and dance, man. You know, tough guy. Get my megaphone out and wow that crowd. Now, you mentioned the tough cop when you started. In this case, that's Charles McGraw, who is usually bad guy, muscle. And that is one of the things I love about these sort of poverty row productions, B productions, that these guys who are not quite the A-list, handsome, leading man types would get a chance to carry a picture like this instead of just being a little color. We get a ton of Charles McGraw through this, and it's fantastic. There's a scene where he and his partner end up rousting Steve Brody out of the burlesque hall that is a great example of a couple of tough cops getting down to business with a minimum of fuss. So kudos to the suits at RKO for recognizing that Charles McGraw and other actors like that were more multifaceted than the majors gave them credit for. I think it's interesting as well that Charles McGraw's character in this is a stand-up cop. He is all business. He's on the good side. And then in our next film, 
we're going to get a little bit more of that gray shading or actually a lot of that gray yeah. shading again. Our next film is my favorite of the 10. This is one of my all-time favorite pictures in any genre from any time period ever. And that is Kansas City Confidential from 1952, directed by Phil Carlson and starring John Payne, Colleen Gray, Neville Brand, and Preston Foster. It's about an ex-con who's now a delivery man for a florist that gets entangled in a robbery, framed, and tracks down the crooks to clear his name. I've known for some time that this was your favorite, but I don't think I know fully why it's your favorite. Now, if this were Animal Crackers, this is the point at which I would say, I'm very glad you asked. And I would say, I withdraw the question. <laughs> there are tons of reasons that this is my favorite. Specifically, it's that sort of city of broad shoulders Americana thing that was happening. Eddie referred to it as the smash mouth variation of crime pictures that was starting to happen here. And it is the first one that I was aware of that was prominently set in the Midwest, Kansas City, rather than Los Angeles, New York. It was a little closer to home to me, which reminds me of what an important role geography plays in the history of noir. Almost every notable example I can think of has some bit of local color in it that sets it apart in some way. Whether that be New Orleans of Panic in the Streets or Bisbee, Arizona that we'll see coming up in Violent Saturday, there is something about where these stories take place that are very important to what they feel like. And this one felt like home to me in a way. In addition to that, there's just the scheme. The plan is such a fun plan. It is ingenious. And the design of the thing with those masks, there's so much that I love about it that's unsettling in a way that other films prior to it weren't. And on top of that, there's John Payne, one of my absolute favorites, one of the most underrated guys I can think of that only really got his due in these films. But he finally hit his stride, it felt like, in these films that very few people, unfortunately, were going to see. Now, John Payne will always have a special place in my heart. You mentioned home mm -hmm. because he's from my hometown. Oh, really? He was born in Roanoke, Virginia, where I grew up. And I had always known that he was from there because, as you do in small towns, you trumpet those favorite sons. And he was one of those. Now, I haven't yet mentioned one of my favorite elements of okay. this or any film. I'm kind of scared from the look on your face. It's Jackie Lamb. Oh, I cannot believe that I left out his name in the credits. I kind of did that on purpose because I wanted to be able to give a special mention okay. for him because he's my guy. Okay. He's got the muggiest mug around. <laughs> this film is full of those. And if you can stand out among Lee Van Cleef's creepy weasel face and Neville Brand's flattened mug then you are really special. One of the differences in this is Colleen Gray's character. Mm -hmm. She's really the sweetheart of noir. She's a professional person in this. She's educated. She's going to law school. And the plot isn't set in motion, as a lot of these are, as a scheme in order to get her. Though we do find out love is at the heart of it. It's not lust. Like we so frequently see. Yes. I, like you, I think, really respond to this at a gut level. This feels like the most American to me because it's more of the America I know. Mm. I think the people are more relatable because the stakes are different. At heart, with the John Payne character, it's about clearing his name. 
Mm, sort of. I think he's on the fence at one point as to whether or not he's going to cut himself in on this or just get his revenge. That's a great point because cutting himself in would also be revenge essentially against the system that put him in jail and now through this frame made it impossible at this point for him to get another job. Again, it seems to me that truly relatable or more relatable American story. And that's not just in these corn-fed, salt-of-the-earth types that are populating it like John Payne and Colleen Gray. It also has to do with the stripped-down style. You don't see the flourishes with camera work and composition that you saw in the earlier noir films that were the result of German emigres, among others, coming over and bringing that expressionist style and injecting that into Hollywood films. Oh, and in this final film, we have our last occurrence of a detail that shows up more than once, which is the gangster in the bow tie who is wound a little too tight. If you are doing a job and forming a team and a squirrely little skinny guy walks in wearing a bow tie, that is not the guy you want. Send that guy packing. He is ultimately going to be trouble. Why do you think they make that sartorial choice, those guys? What is it about the bow tie that appeals to the one who is wound too tight? I think it just screams... It's so close to the neck. It's so taut. It has to be tied a certain way. And so it's got to be, at heart, a sex pervert <laughs> or whatever. Well, that was the end of day two, and that was a killer lineup. Day three begins with sort of a curveball. We've got Violent Saturday from 1955. Which we watched on a Sunday. We did. Eddie said he got a lot of flack for that. <laughs> Directed by Richard Fleischer with Victor Mature... Richard Egan, Stephen McNally, Virginia Leith, and Lee Marvin. This was the widescreen Technicolor entry, the this only division. one we had, this division. It's pulp fiction and melodrama brought together as a small town is about to explode with a bank robbery scheme. Not to mention unbridled passions. Not to mention Ernest Borgnine as an Amish farmer. <laughs> that joint was a regular Peyton place. It was. I loved the Vista Vision. I loved the color. I think Richard Fleischer was a master in the use of those two elements in this film. Your eye has so many places to go, and he knows exactly how to shift the action within the frame to keep it moving and sweeping absolutely wonderful. You had earlier touched upon Bisbee, Arizona. That's where the film was shot. It's set in a small mining town, and this again is when location makes such a difference, and also adding to that sense of we're in America. It looks absolutely spectacular, as I mentioned, and I loved having a unique angle at any given shot. It manages to be cunning and sharp, and then at the same time, warm and understanding and very human. Is that expressly because there were so many of these Douglas Sirkian melodramatic elements to it? You got to see so much of the domesticity rather than focusing on the gangsters? Yes. And I'm thinking specifically about Victor Mature's character and his relationship with his son. Mm. A son that we're introduced to in a schoolyard fight, which apparently this town of Bisbee, I would guess, what, has 400, 500 people in it? and apparently 280 of them are grade school kids, because this is the biggest schoolyard fight scene I've ever seen. Well, and somebody had to create all these kids. The town looked 
more like maybe about 10,000 people, I would say. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> anyway, there's also that great relationship at the core, the central marriage. And it was kind of fun to see somebody come out and say alcoholic and tramp on screen. <laughs> As a self-assessment. Yes. So we get a peek into the lives of all of the people that are going to be impacted by this robbery. And then we have the robbery itself, the planning and the execution and the aftermath. I've been trying to touch upon the different female types, and this has really got one of each. Mm -hmm. The aforementioned tramp, the sweetheart nurse. That nurse is more calculating than the average sweetheart. That's true. But she still has her heart at the center of everything. We've got the mother, the pure mother. We've got the librarian with a secret. Did you enjoy this as much as I did? Probably not quite as much. I enjoyed it more than I thought I was going to. And I don't know if I was expecting a little less of it because when I go to the noir festival, I'm in a certain mindset. Academy ratio, black and white. And so it was great to have an opportunity to throw that off and be challenged by this thing. And it turned out to be really fantastic. I don't know if I was quite as taken with it, but there are some things about it that are really great. Getting to see Lee Marvin this way, that great scene where he steps on that kid's hand, and that siege in the barn at the end that is so tense with Victor Mature and Ernest Borgnine versus the gangsters. There are bursts of violence in that that are shocking, and there's tension and action and biblical retribution. There's a whole lot happening with it that turned out to make a really great film. It might be because I don't actually watch a ton of mid-century work. This is probably a big hole for me, and especially melodrama of the period. Mm -hmm. So I was caught off guard, and I really enjoyed it. Well, with the next film on day three, we take a step back from this widescreen technicolor melodrama and revert to the classic style black and white noir again. And that is with The Killing from 1956, directed by Stanley Kubrick, and starring Sterling Hayden, Colleen Gray again, Elisha Cook, Marie Windsor, and Timothy Carey. This thing is wall-to-wall -wall noir favorites. It is about a racetrack robbery that, as they often do, goes awry. Interestingly, these films were all screened in chronological order, so it is a real shock to see the Technicolor that we mentioned, and then go back a little bit to the style that we are so accustomed to, the one that I was saying that I have in my mind when I think film noir. After such a major stylistic shift as Violent Saturday, and this feeling like we've leapt forward into a more modern era, is there anything about this return to more classic form and following a chronology, is there anything about that that is significant to you right here? First off, The Killing is my absolute favorite of this bunch. This is when things really start to get good for me. Okay. In what way? Now, you know I love the 40s. Mm -hmm. But everyone now is a little bit older. And I love that. I love seeing Sterling Hayden's subtle age differences. Colleen Gray at this point has some lines on her face. Marie Windsor, we know we've seen her do it so well. And now she's completely owning it. Mm -hmm. So there's a much more lived-in earned quality to everything that everyone is doing. And the world weariness, mm -hmm. which we will see to great effect in our next film, right. 
is starting to come into play. This is when everyone at this point should know better. (laughs) So all of these chances are very definitely last chances. Absolutely. I think it's just that time and age and experience that really makes these next three films soar for me. To highlight some of the things I especially love, Sterling Hayden and all his gruff power. Focusing again on our women, Colleen Gray's our sweetheart. Marie Windsor, absolutely smarter than everyone else, Fatal. I might want to take issue with that a little bit. Okay. Do you mean book smart when you say that? (laughs) No. Because she can't avoid the same self-destructive end that the rest of them can avoid. Even though she might be more canny and more manipulative, she's moving more pieces on the board. It ultimately doesn't end any better for her than anyone else. She still can't figure out how to take care of herself. And that is punctuated more than anything by her death scene, which she milks a little bit. It goes on a little bit longer than maybe it has to. But the pathetic quality of her saying, I never had a real man. You were all I had. And those being her last words, that realization that her life never measured up to what she wanted. She's just as pathetic and as much of a loser and as sad as the guys. It could be that I'm just remembering all the great Jim Thompson dialogue mm-hmm. that there he gives her. He gives her the best moments, Without I think. And of course she would, because she's Marie Windsor. Now, one last thing I want to make sure I don't forget to say, because I actually forget this every time I watch it. Two great moments with J.C. Flippin. Mm-hmm. The first, the look on his face and the way he delivers the line, I'll do anything for Johnny. Mm-hmm. And then the scene that they have together when he's basically pleading with him, don't get married. There's so much interesting subtext happening. And it's a small element and it's not commented on, but I absolutely love it. And I think it elevates again with so many other parts of this to make this a great film for me. Yes, he's great. Everybody's great. This one is a real testament to that whole there are no small parts thing. Because you've got Elisha Cook, Noir Stalwart, one of those guys that I will sit down and watch anytime. The insane Timothy Carey and his gritted teeth in a tiny role as a psychotic horse assassin. It is very Kubrick in that way that I feel like he has thought about every single element and who and where and when every tiny move he wants them to make. And it comes out perfectly. Well, for this home stretch, for the last two films, we cross the Atlantic and see how this noir cross-pollination affects the film culture in France and England. We have Rififi from 1955, directed by Jules Dassin, with Jean Servet, Carl Moner, Janine Darcy, and Robert Manuel. In it, four men plan a technically perfect crime, but as always, the human element intervenes. This, I don't think there's any controversy around, is the heist film gold standard. Without a doubt. I was going to mention that because I mentioned Kansas City Confidential is my favorite of this bunch, but I freely admit, to me, Rififi is the best of the 10 films that we saw in terms of writing, performance, execution. It is the better film, but Kansas City Confidential wins me over for other reasons. Total agreement with me. You know, I just said The Killing is my favorite. This is a perfect mm. film. We have the 
world-weariest criminal at the center in Jean Savet. The director himself, Jules Dassin, stepped in to play the character of César. I cannot think of any way that this film could have been made better, cast better, acted better, looked better, sounded better, had better dialogue or story or ending. Absolutely wonderful. Okay, we're done then. <laughs> I actually wrote, can't say much more than that, but we can. I wanted to go back to the idea that we first visited in High Sierra at the beginning of all this, thinking of the folk hero, the outlaw that we sympathize with. One thing I forgot to say in High Sierra was to mention the specific victims of the crimes. I mentioned that he took it out on other criminals. The other thing I forgot to mention that makes him sympathetic to a regular, everyday Joe audience is they're ripping off the swells. This is not about a crime perpetrated on the guy who owns the corner drugstore. In that first robbery in High Sierra, they're breaking into the hotel safe deposit boxes of a bunch of ritzy stuffed shirts. And in Rififi, it's a stash of priceless jewels. So they're not after the little guy. The working class, the everyday cinema goer, can go to this and say, yeah, stick it to those guys. And with Tony, Jean Servet, he has just gotten out of prison. This is truly the one last score because he looks like he's going to die possibly at any moment. Tubercular, yes. D yes. We've got the group with him of the most bon vivant of the bon vivants, people I want to hang out with. Right. I was going to mention that. Of all the crews that we see get together, this is the bunch that I would like to spend time with. Every other one of them had that loose cannon or that guy who was wound too tight, that wild card that you thought, mm, no thanks. But this group, I love these guys. Speaking of the wild cards, we've got those in the rival gang. They are clearly set up to be the thugs, the junkies, the people in it for the money and the pain. Our guys are in it for the money, but it's to have a better life. There's an interesting and difficult racial undertone to that that doesn't get addressed in the film. Dassin saw that and said, no, we are excising that. We are going to focus on the heist. But in the source novel, that rival gang you see, they flesh that out a lot. And it's spelled out in much more explicit detail than what in the film are just subtle character details. So way more fun than a race war mm -hmm. <laughs> is the sexiness in this one. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. Ida, she's a goer. The French know what they're doing. You're not kidding. <laughs> Mario and Cesar, I'll say it again. I want to hang out with those guys. I want to go dancing with those fellows. The Cesar character prompted me to ask you when we were in the theater, if you know this ladies' man type, does that guy exist in real life? This guy that's out with a different girl every night or that seemingly has never seen a naked woman and when that happens is ready to throw everything away. All these carefully crafted plans go out the window when a pretty girl walks by. Well, there are two types, I guess. Or we're led to believe there are supposed to be two types. One who is constantly seeking a new companion and will hit on every person who crosses his path. And the other whose head is turned by everyone. And that seems to be the slightly more lovable of the two. <clears throat> Cesar manages... Not to come off as a sexual predator. <laughs> Barely. He's just looking for a good time. And 
is ready to spread his love and joy. You're not kidding. I'm digging myself a big hole here. <laughs> it doesn't come off as creepy as okay. maybe I'm sounding. Just good time, Charlie. Maybe it is just creepy in real life, really. And he somehow manages to pull it off. Good work, Jules Dassin. Both in front of and behind the camera. And finally, for film number 10, we end up with the way I love to go out of these things. With something that's new to both of us. That last film was Cash on Demand from 1961, directed by Quentin Lawrence, starring Peter Cushing, Andre Morel, Norman Byrd, and Richard Vernon, in which a charming but ruthless criminal holds the family of a bank manager hostage as part of a cold-blooded plan to steal 97,000 pounds. This was my most anticipated film, and it did not disappoint I absolutely loved this. It's going to tick a lot of those boxes for me. It's Hammer. Mm -hmm. It's Peter Cushing. Andre Morel, I love. That guy's personality plus. (laughs) It is spare and tight. It looks like it was shot for television, on a television budget as well. Because it's really in just a couple of sets, all centered in this bank, and we move from room to room in the bank. And it's a combination that we already know we love because Cushing and Morell played Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, respectively, in Hammer's production of The Hound of the Baskervilles from just a couple years before. Their chemistry is outstanding, and it's basically a two-hander here with a little bit of extra side character now and then. So we already know going in, this has the potential to be fantastic. And it didn't disappoint. We both liked it so much that the first thing we did this morning when we got up was that I ordered that Hammer Icons of Suspense box set so we could have it for ourselves. It's a fun departure set around Christmas time, and Christmas plays a very important role in the story. Peter Cushing is essentially Scrooge in this. Andre Morel, the ghost of Christmas whatever. I'm going to say present, because that guy also liked a good time. Definitely. I want to hang out with Colonel Gore Hepburn any day of the week. To be fair, there's very little that's noir in this. This is much more just a straight suspense caper film. And it functioned for me a little bit like the after-dinner mint of the festival, which was a great note to go out on. It was so fun, and their performances, their chemistry, watching them go back and forth with each other. Though they are definitely no slouches in the department of setting up the heist and the execution of the heist. Oh, it's a great plan. Foolproof again, it seems like. Well, adhering so closely to the Christmas Carol motif, how does this one fit in, do you think, going forward in your pantheon of Christmas movies? Because I know you've got a ton of favorites. The Man Who Came to Dinner. You prefer the Reginald Owen version of A Christmas Carol where I'm the Alistair Sim guy. How does this fit into our holiday cycle now? I think it's got to fit in right after Alistair. Don't you? Okay. I can't wait to show it to an audience because they're going to have so much fun. And I think, finally, this is one of those schemes that you and I could pull off. What do you think? God bless us, everyone. And that was it. That was 10 films over the course of three days. What did you think of the experience? That was my first true festival experience of trying to see everything. It was great fun. Really, any other festival experience that comes after this I think might be a little bit of a letdown because Eddie Muller's not going to be there. It was great to see, as we've talked about, the progression of the heist film within the heist itself, within the character development, acting direction, dialogue. 
There wasn't a dud in the bunch. It was curated really well. And that chronological element was a really fun thing to watch and explore. A wonderful, exhausting, <laughs> triumphant experience. I am truly the greatest American hero for getting through all 10. <laughs> because some of them took place after 8.30 p.m. Which, as we all know, is your bedtime. How about you? Well, that brings me to my special thanks part of the thing. And most especially, that was for you. Because in all these years, we've never been able to take off time together to do a whole thing like this. And there is no one I would rather do this stuff with than you. I had such a good time, but especially because we got to do it together. I'm glad we got to see it from beginning to end, talk about it the whole time, meet a bunch of new people. It was a really good time, but I would not have had near as much fun by myself. So thank you. You're welcome. And that brings us to the end of episode 49. In addition to thanks to you, I definitely want to say special thanks to Eddie Muller for sitting down with us for a nice long discussion of all things film noir. If you want to hear that, go back one episode to episode 48. Since we recorded that a few days ago, I've gone back to listen just to see how it sounds a couple of times, and every time I end up listening for a long time because it's so compelling to listen to that guy. And as I mentioned before, if you have the chance to go to one of these festivals, do so. And make sure you go talk to Eddie. He makes a point to chat with everyone who wants to come up and chat with him, and it's genuine. And if there's something that you want to ask, absolutely do that. Get a chance to say thank you, shake his hand, whatever you want to do. In addition to Eddie, I wanted to say thanks again to Daryl Sparks and Ann Hawkins at the Film Noir Foundation for setting up that whole interview for us. Everybody we dealt with from the Film Noir Foundation was so nice and friendly and helpful. I can't say enough good things about those folks and the work they do. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those places. We are on Twitter, at lantern underscore cast. And I wanted to take a second here to say thanks to everyone who has given us feedback or shared the show since we last mentioned it. Drew Tavendale, Scott Morris, and Craig Eastman over at Fuds on Film. Aaron West over at Criterion Now. Travis Trudell. Tyler Allen at the Minds of Madness podcast. Eric Parkinson at the podcast This Must Be the Place. Andrew Wycliffe. Grindhouse Dave. The guys at the aptly named Eric Roberts is the Man podcast who enjoyed our Pope of Greenwich Village episode. Jeff Duncanson. Andy Wolverton. Mike Scharf. Anna Rowland. Jane Sankner. Jesse Dampolo. Michael Cavaney. Laura Cannon, Twitter user SilverBlueSnow, the folks at the Noir Zone, and a special thanks to Ashley Sayers for leaving us a really nice review. We really appreciate that, Ashley. Thank you very much. We are on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher Radio, and if you would like to leave us a review at any of those places, we would certainly appreciate it. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 